Just Man's the Podcast. comfortable in this chair and it's just not happening at almost 38 weeks pregnant I can't be comfortable in any situation even on the couch it's just not comfortable I've reached the point in pregnancy where the only way to avoid discomfort is to have baby out hi guys (laughs) welcome back to another episode of just man's the podcast it's your host Amanda and I am so happy that you guys are listening to this episode I am nearing the end of pregnancy And it's kind of crazy. It feels like these last nine months just kind of flew by. But at the same time, it feels like it was slow. I don't know. It's it's very weird. Pregnancy is a weird, beautiful, magical, really uncomfortable (laughs) journey. But you get a little baby at the end of it. And I get a little baby in like less than two weeks, guys. It's insane. Baby is still breech, so I was bummed, and honestly, now I'm kind of just over it, and I'm like, you know, if this baby wants to stay breech, he has a reason, and even if he doesn't have a reason, he's probably just stubborn like his mom and his dad, and that's totally cool. I'm not going to force him to move or be bummed if he doesn't want to. All I care about right now is one getting him out so that I can feel comfortable again and have my body again (laughs) back to myself and that he's healthy and that I'm healthy and that everybody's healthy and just safe because nine months of pregnancy, all you want is a healthy, happy baby at the end of this. I do want to do an episode all about pregnancy coming up with Lucas and we'll talk about all of the things like get into the specifics of everything I've been doing to try and flip this breech baby So like I said, I'm getting to the point where like I'm just accepting the position that he's in if he wants to stay there. But I also have been trying my best to encourage him to flip. So we will be doing an episode on that. I want to talk all things birth plan, pregnancy debriefs. So like all things C-sections versus vaginal breech births, ECVs, which are the manual versions, becoming parents, pregnancy resources, research that you should do and decisions that you have to make when you're pregnant and postpartum recovery plans. There's just so much that I want to get into about pregnancy. And I feel like I haven't done a sit down chatty solo episode or just episode with me and Lucas where we're just talking to you guys and specifically all about pregnancy because my brand pillars are womanhood, wellness, and self growth. But I know a lot of my audience isn't pregnant, so I don't want to just constantly do pregnant content. I mean, if you follow me on Instagram, most of my content is pregnancy because that's the stage of life I'm in right now. But I definitely have been trying to cater to, you know, all my college girls, all my women who aren't pregnant, just everybody that pregnancy doesn't apply to. However, I need to stay authentic and true to what's going on in my life right now. So I definitely want to sit down and do a pregnancy birth plan, everything about what's been going on episode. And I want Lucas to join me. So let me know if that's something you guys would be interested in and also send me some topics that you guys would want to know about in terms of pregnancy and birth plans and just all that good stuff. Other than that, 
we're pretty much just nesting. We're getting ready for baby, getting the apartment together, getting the finishing touches together. I will say everyone who has come over to visit has been blown away at how fast we've kind of gotten everything to come together. So the nursery is pretty much done except for like a few art pieces. Our room is pretty much done except for a few art pieces. And the living room is pretty much done except for a few things. Again, we want to get some more art, but we also want to get a little table for just the living room to put little fun memorabilia on. And just there's this one space that needs needs something there, you know? So we've really made our little apartment a little home and it's coming together so nice. Oh, we just got our outdoor furniture from Target and I have to say it is so cute. We still need to get a few little seats for the outdoor area so that we can have more than two people sitting out there. But yeah, everything is coming together with the apartment. We are so obsessed with plants. I'm literally just looking straight ahead right now and I can see three different plants. We have baby's breath, which is my favorite ever flower on our table right now. We have a huge, I think it's called Dracaena, Dracaena. I think that's what you call it, a plant. And we have a bonsai tree too. So Lucas is like super, I thought that I was going to be the one that was like, we need plants, we need nature, we need flowers everywhere in our apartment. Lucas absolutely adores plants and flowers and insists on getting them. Every time that we go out anywhere, we run errands. If we're going grocery shopping, he picks up some flowers. If we're going to Target, he looks in the plants. If we go to Home Depot, he's like, we need to get another plant. Or just plants are on his radar 24-7. And I'm not complaining, but, you know, we have, like, honestly, six different plants and flowers in our living room. And I don't know if it's excessive or just the perfect amount, you know? So... We love plants. I also am obsessed with my diffuser and I love to diffuse lavender and lemon during the day and even some orange. I think that's really nice to just have going throughout the apartment and just kind of give just like another element of ambiance to our apartment. So I work from home, obviously. And so when I'm home, I really want my space to feel like it's giving me energy. I don't want it to drain me or make me feel anxious or make me feel trapped. So that's why we love flowers. And that's why I love my diffuser. We also love candles and my salt rock lamp. I just got this salt rock lamp from natural grocers and it was one of the best decisions that I've ever made. I love putting it on during the day and just having that going because we don't like to turn any lights on until nighttime, but I do like to have that on just constantly. And then at night, it's really, really awesome because it just makes me want to like curl up and cozy into bed and you know, again, during the night, I don't really want too many lights on. I don't really want to be stimulated because I think that just, you know, counteracts me wanting to go to bed. So I really like how it emits this just really beautiful, warm, orangey red light. And it's just super calming. Another thing that I've been super into lately is baking. Okay. I am so ready for fall because being pregnant in the summer is a whole different animal and I don't like it. I go to the farmer's markets and I literally can only stay there for 15 minutes and Lucas even has to bring an umbrella. I have to buy like three different kinds of beverages when I'm there because I just get so dehydrated. I almost pass out of heat. So 
I am so ready for fall and I am so into baking fall goods and making just fall flavored things. So what I've been loving to bake right now is Shut the Kale Up's banana bread recipe. I think it's her salted chocolate banana bread. It is to die for. It is so good, you guys. If you haven't made it before, definitely go to her website and make it. I also am so obsessed with my Nespresso machine because I've been making the best lattes ever in the morning and Lucas can vouch for that. I make him a caramel maple oat milk latte iced every single morning and he loves it. I, however, have been loving a honey almond latte, sometimes decaf, sometimes just light caffeine. I also have mastered my maple ginger spice latte. So the other day I made a maple ginger spice latte with light caffeine espresso. And then today I actually made a maple ginger spice matcha latte and I use oat milk. And I'm going to be sharing these recipes on the blog. So if you're like, wait, what's a maple ginger spice latte? I need to see the recipe. Don't worry. I haven't shared it yet, but I'm going to. It is probably going to be your new staple for fall. I'm just calling it right now. Like PSL move out of the way. This is everything. It's also supposed to snow this Tuesday. So tomorrow, if you guys are listening on Monday, it's supposed to snow, which is kind of weird. And I'm not sure how I feel about it because for the past couple years or ever since I've been out in Colorado, the first snow day has been either October 9th or October 10th. I don't know how I remember that. I think it's just because it's been literally the same day almost every single year. I just remember it. But September 9th, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I'm super into the idea of fall and it not being summer anymore, but like snow? I don't know. Ever since I moved to Colorado, winter has been my favorite month or not month, pregnancy brain. Winter has been my favorite season. I used to come out to Colorado every single year to ski. And I would complain about the snow. I'd complain about the cold. I didn't like it. As soon as I moved out here full time, it became my favorite thing in the world. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I was raised in Florida and kind of over the heat and over the summer, I needed a change. I don't know. It's just become my favorite season. And yeah, I don't really know if it's going to snow. I'm kind of like erring on the more skeptical side. I don't think it's going to, but if it does, I don't think I'd be opposed to it. I'm just like absorbing and craving all of the cozy vibes right now. So if it does, I just plan on staying in and putting sweats on and watching all of the holiday movies. Speaking of holidays, that's another thing that I'm super excited about because I feel like the way that 2020 played out, it definitely forced us all to really confront our issues and thoughts and feelings and all of the familial friend and relationship bullshit that we were dealing with before and kind of just got our ducks in a row honestly like we were able to really think about what matters in our life and what's important in our life and I feel like because of that and because we were able to kind of weed out all the shit that didn't matter we're going to be more intentional this holiday season and we're going to be more grateful for the things that we have because we were really tested this year. So I'm just so pumped for the holidays. I'm also so pumped to have a little freaking baby during the holidays. It's just going to be such a cozy time. The rest of the year, that's my word, cozy, cozy, comforting, calming, new. Well, I don't know about calming, but that's I'm pulling for that. I'm rooting for calming. Hopefully I have a calm baby. <laughs> 
but I think we're just going to be able to really celebrate life. And that's just something that I'm super, super excited about. Speaking of being grateful though, reviews, reviews leave me feeling so, so grateful you guys, because it just makes me so happy when I read that one of you who is listening is really loving what I'm putting out and the content that I'm creating and the message that I'm trying to spread because I spend so much of my time brainstorming for the podcast and recording for the podcast and interviewing for the podcast and just really dedicating time and effort and blood, sweat, and tears to this podcast. So it just makes me so over the moon when I read that you guys are loving it. And I wanted to read a review today. This is from Chelsea. She says that my podcast is like having a conversation with a good friend. Her episodes are an easy listen and you will always learn something new. I love listening because she shares her perspectives on things while being completely herself and kindly sharing her life journey to help others. And I am so, so happy that you recognize that because that's all I want to do. And that's why I'm so vulnerable and transparent and honest with you guys is because I think if I can share a little bit of my journey and my experience in life, it can help you guys sort through your own and grow in your own lives. So thank you so much, Chelsea, for leaving that review. As always, guys, if you have the time, because I know life gets busy. If you have the time, please leave a rating and review because it really, really helps people find my show and helps us grow this little community and have others come and listen. So again, please rate and review if you have a second. All right, jumping into the interview for today. I am interviewing Hannah. She is known as Holistically Hannah on Instagram. She is a registered holistic nutritionist. And if you're like, what the heck is a registered holistic nutritionist? Don't worry. She breaks it down in this episode as well as a wellness blogger. I have been following her for probably a little over two years now. And I first discovered her profile when I lost my period for like eight months after getting off of birth control. And I wanted to find holistic ways to get my period back and heal my hormones. So I found her post on seed cycling and I just fell in love with her content. She's so educational, so inspiring and just really preaches using food as medicine, intuitive eating, natural living, and inspiring others to reconnect with their innate wisdom. And you guys, we def talk about innate wisdom in this episode. We talk all things periods, menstrual cups, natural forms of birth control, hormone imbalance, seed cycling, gut health, fad diets, non-toxic households, meditation, earthing, coffee, and how to live a holistic life. Yeah, that was a lot, but we get into it. We get into it all today. And this is a great episode for my ladies out there who are just wanting to get to know their bodies more and get more in touch with themselves and just learn how to implement more holistic wellness into their lives. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right, Hannah, so tell everybody who you are and what exactly a holistic nutritionist is. Yeah, so my name is Hannah and I live on the Sunshine Coast of BC in Canada and I am a registered holistic nutritionist and wellness blogger and I have been blogging for a couple of years and then more recently graduated as a nutritionist um, 
this past spring. And essentially, when you kind of look at your typical dietitian or nutritionist, there's really a focus on numbers and sort of the macronutrients and micronutrients in food. But as with a holistic nutritionist, which is what I am, we really emphasize the whole body. So it's looking at food as more of a medicinal approach, as well as taking into consideration a person's lifestyle and their stress levels and their career. And it's really a whole body approach um, and kind of seeing every single person as an individual. Have you always been interested in health and wellness? Because I'm, I'm interested in what inspired you to go down the path of one, a nutritionist, but also a holistic nutritionist. Yeah, so it really all started for me back when I was in high school and I started to experience a number of digestive issues. And that's when I really, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's kind of when I first started looking at health and getting into food. And originally the approach that I took was very a Western medicine approach. So kind of just trying to figure out what sort of diet is going to work best for me. And after I got deeper into that and realized that that really wasn't working, that's when I kind of stumbled upon the whole holistic health world. And I have to credit my mom because when I was growing up, she was always into this stuff and she was always pushing natural foods and non-toxic products and eating organic onto us. But when I was younger, I definitely rebelled at all of those ideas. (laughs) But now looking back, I think she was a very wise woman. Um, And so, yeah, after after I graduated high school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I kind of just took a couple of years to get to know myself and explore my passions. And that's really when I fell deep into the holistic health realm. And at this point, my digestive issues were also getting worse. And so I started to seek out kind of some alternative approaches, such as seeing functional medicine doctors and naturopaths and going to acupuncture. And then I thankfully stumbled across the Institute um, or the Canadian School of Natural Nutrition. And that's where I went to school. How did the digestive in digestive issues manifest themselves for you? Because I definitely struggle with digestive issues too, bloating, constipation, the the typical things that I see so often in my DMs. People are like, I am so bloated all the time. Did that manifest itself in bloating and constipation for you too? Or what did it look differently? Yeah, so mine really started out as bloating. That was the number one thing. And I hear this from so many women. It just seems like almost everybody is experiencing some sort of digestive discomfort these days. And then as time went on, it kind of got worse. I had alternating constipation and diarrhea. I started getting cramping after certain foods. And then it really went into a mental thing as well because the gut and the brain are so connected. And so the worse my digestive issues got, the worse my anxiety got. And that was something I never dealt with when I was little. And so I think when it went into more of emotional aspect that's when I realized I really needed to get this under control Um, and so I started off essentially trying to take the more restrictive route and I think that when we are dealing with these digestive issues we want to try to start cutting things out so that we can heal our gut but 
for me personally, uh, it was a long journey of going down these restrictive diets and trying to figure out what foods were causing the problem, but I wasn't actually addressing the root of the issue. And so finally now I feel like I'm at a place where I have a really good and healthy relationship with food and I can better understand that so many of those digestive problems were not actually stemming from what I was eating, but it was more of a mental and emotional underlying imbalance. I'm so happy that you touched on it being a mental thing too, because I remember when my gut was in the worst place ever, when I had a ton of gas and bloating, I was so mentally just depressed and anxious all the time and not necessarily full-blown depression because I think that's something in its own, but I was so irritable and I was not getting joy from the things that I really enjoyed previously. And when I realized that it was linked to my gut, it made a world of difference. Yeah, I completely relate to that. And it's so hard because when you're not in this good mental state, then you start to kind of fear the foods that you think are triggering it. And it can really go down this path of a disordered relationship with food, which was kind of the path that I went on for a long time. And so that's why I think it's so essential to kind of take it back and look at the greater picture. And instead of trying to blame food for our issues, it's really helpful to look deeper and be like, how am I, how, how am I doing in life right now? How are my relationships? How am I, how is my job? Do I enjoy what I'm doing? Am I finding healthy ways to cope with stress? Or is that something that I'm just living in a constant state of all the time? And I think too, something that I realized, like you said, it, it's not really stemming from food or it doesn't have to stem from food because when I realized that my gut wasn't in a good place, as soon as I just told myself, okay, let's stop being so obsessive. Let's stop being so restrictive. When I kind of just like put it out of my mind, I realized that it got better on its own because I wasn't stressed out about it. That is exactly my experience too. And I really had to go within, and this is where intuition comes in, because I had various doctors and various healers telling me certain things, and oh, you should do this, and oh, you should do that, but intuitively, I just felt like, no, I have to really go within and start to manage my stress levels, and right now, for me, cutting more foods out is not going to be beneficial and supportive. Of. And so I think we really have to learn to kind of strengthen our inner voice and really connecting with that because our body often knows the answers and it knows what to do and we just have to tune in. I think what could be so frustrating about whenever I have these conversations with people, I know that there's listeners on the other side who are like, okay, I hear you guys, you guys both went through a journey and you guys are finally in a good place, but I'm in that place where I'm struggling right now. And I know it can be so hard to hear people who have come out the other side and be like, yeah, you guys will get through it. It's all, you know, it's, it's all good in the end, but for them, it's not. So I know that, like you said, having various doctors, having various healers and not really being 100% sure of what route to go or where to go from there, it can be so overwhelming. So what would you say to someone who's kind of in that point right now where their gut is not healthy and they just don't feel mentally clear? What would you say to somebody and how they can step back from that and just kind of start small on the process of healing? Yeah, and that is such a good point. I'm glad you brought that up because 
I was that person for many years who would look and listen to these people who seem to have come out the other side. And I was like, well, I'm in the midst, so I don't know where to go. But I think just coming back, the first and most essential place to start is to check in with your emotional health and really look at your stress levels and look at your relationship with how you're eating and the way you're eating and the foods that you're eating. So essentially, our stress and our digestion are completely connected. When we're in any sort of stressed out state, it actually turns off our natural digestive processes. And so our body's not going to be able to digest the foods that if we were in a calm and relaxed state, we would be able to do. And so I think the an easy takeaway that the listeners can try right away is to kind of cultivate a mindful eating practice. And so this is essentially finding time to eat when you are not in a stressed out state and you're not distracted and you're actually able to sit down and put away all distractions. I know it's so easy to eat in front of the TV or while you're scrolling on your phone, but we actually, part of the digestive process is when we're using our eyes to look at our food and we're using all of our senses. And so it's so important to put all of those things away and fully give our attention to the food that's in front of us. And then to bring our body into that calm state, we can do a breathing exercise. So this is what I like to do personally before I eat is taking five to 10 deep belly breaths and really um, inhaling into your body and letting your belly expand and then breathing out and just doing that to bring your body back into a state of balance and something as simple as that can make a world of a difference for our digestive health and the way that we're actually going to be assimilating our food and absorbing our nutrients. I think if you're a foodie too that's such an important thing because then you actually get to enjoy your food to the fullest like Sometimes if I do work on the computer while I'm eating, I'll look down like 15 minutes later and be like, well, my food is gone and I didn't even get to enjoy what I made. So I think that's so important. And I think a stigma that people have, especially in the US, is not eating alone. I think people are so afraid to eat alone. And I think it can be eat alone because you can focus on your food that's in front of you. Yeah, I completely relate to that. And I I definitely do find it easier if I'm eating with someone. But I think a lot of us, we eat most of our meals alone. And especially during times with COVID and Mm -hmm. social distancing and isolation. So yeah, for me, I think even if you have like a nice music on in the background, or even if you're starting off from turning off the television and putting away the phone. But even if you're putting on a podcast, like for me, I think that a podcast is a beautiful way to still kind of feel like you're eating with someone, but it's not taking away from the visuals. And so you're still able to be kind of present with your food and chewing your food. And it's really about baby steps and finding something that actually works for you. So that's what I would recommend. Podcasts or music if you really don't like like the silence. I have many podcast episodes for you guys to listen to if you guys want to do a podcast. (laughs) So I want to go into hormones because Mm -hmm. is there a link between hormones and gut health? Yes. Yes, there definitely is. And there's a lot of debate as to if you're having both 
gut health issues and hormonal imbalances, where do I start first? And I, I do think it really depends on the individual. But what I've noticed is when you start to address your gut, your hormones will balance out. And when you start to balance your hormones, your gut will begin to balance out. So the thing with holistic nutrition and holistic medicine is realizing that all of our body systems are connected, our mind, our hormones, our gut, everything. So basically then if, if somebody, you know, cause again, holistic nutrition, I feel like can look on the surface so overwhelming to somebody and complicated because like you said, everything's connected. So I think when people hear that, they're like, well, I don't know where to start. Like you said. Mm -hmm. So do you think that just pick one to start with and then, you know, you'll probably see a ripple effect? Absolutely. And I think we should always start with the lowest hanging fruit, which would mean either starting in the area that you feel you're having the most trouble with, or starting in the area that you feel most passionate about actually making change towards. What are the most common symptoms of hormone imbalance? Yeah, so I was learning recently that there's actually over 150 different forms of PMS. So 150 wow. different symptoms that women can get um, in their pre, um, the phase before their period. So I was really amazed at that. But when you're looking at hormonal imbalance, they can pop up in so many ways. But essentially, the most common things are a lot of emotional stuff. So it's going to be mood swings and kind of anxiety and depression that can really pop up, especially in the window of one to two weeks before your cycle. And then circling back to PMS, I think that in our modern day culture, we've really normalized that. But PMS, even though it's um, very common, it's not actually normal. And that's actually a very big sign of hormonal imbalance. So what can someone do to kind of get their hormones checked? Like what can someone do to figure out if they do have a hormonal imbalance? Because for me, I'm someone who, if I feel like I have a hormone imbalance, I want to see the, I want to see it on paper. You know what I mean? So what can someone do to get their hormones checked? Totally. So if you want to go an actual testing route, the Dutch hormone test is basically the gold standard. There are a lot of different hormone testings out there, but oftentimes when you go to the doctor and you just ask for a basic um, hormone kind of panel, what they're going to do is give you something that's not a full picture. It's just a snapshot of one day. So really when you are choosing that hormone test, you want to look for something that you do over the course of around 30 days. And that's gonna give you the big picture of what your hormones are actually doing over the, the cycle of the month. Now, if you want a completely free at-home hormone test that you can do every single month, I actually say looking at your period. And so we can learn a lot of things by examining the length of our cycle and even looking at the color of our period blood. And we can learn so much from this, this um, thing that our body's actually gifting us every single month. Are painful menstrual cramps a sign of hormone imbalance? They are. And 
I think with menstrual cramps, it can really come down to a couple of different things. And oftentimes that's associated with an excess of um, inflammatory hormones in our body. And so we really want to, when it comes to hormone cramps, look to things that are soothing and really relaxing the muscle contractions. One of my favorite remedies is actually raspberry. So raspberry leaf tea, and that to me has been really soothing and it actually tones the uterus lining um, and can kind of ease those cramps. But also another thing I do like to kind of bring up with the menstrual cramping is sometimes it can be like a deeper emotional rooted issue as well. And so when we are having a lot of intense pain, um, like the cramps or even intense emotions around our cycle, sometimes that's our body's way of telling us that something might not be going completely right in life. And it's kind of our body's way of saying you need to reevaluate and look a little bit deeper. I think because that was something that I struggled with before I got pregnant was I had really, really terrible menstrual cramps. And I think a lot of it has to do with birth control too. I don't know the actual science behind it, but I was often on birth control and I don't think my hormones ever got to a place where they were fully regulated. But I think you know, when I had terrible menstrual cramps, I accepted that as normal, but it's not. So what are some things that people can do to take a look at their hormones? So you said, look at periods, look at the blood. Is there any kind of food that they can start implementing into their uh, diet during their menstrual cycles or even like during ovulation or other phases of their period that would help? Yeah. So essentially the first Place I really like to look at when it comes to balancing hormones is actually balancing our blood sugar. Because when we look at blood sugar, essentially, we really want this nice kind of stable line all day long. So when we wake up in the morning, our blood sugar is naturally low. And so for a woman, it's very supportive to actually eat breakfast as opposed to doing intermittent fasting. And this is what all of the newest research is showing us. And I think it's confusing because so many of the trends and fad diets that are out there right now, all of that research is done on a male's body. They don't actually use women for nutrition research studies and testing. And so they're not taking into account our 30 day or approximately 30 day menstrual cycles and they're not taking into account our fluctuating hormones. And so I really think that getting a hold of blood sugar, when we're able to stabilize that, I noticed a ripple effect of really stabilizing all of the other hormones. And so my tips, my best tips for stabilizing blood sugar are eating breakfast in the morning instead of trying to hold off and push off breakfast until lunch. And then as well as eating all of the macronutrients. So not doing these really low carb diets and not going into keto um, or paleo really, and just kind of incorporating, making sure that we're incorporating healthy fats and protein and complex carbohydrates at every meal. And then my last blood sugar balancing tip is to make sure that we're eating throughout the day. And so not going longer than three to four hours at max between meals so that we can really keep our body nice and nourished and that that blood sugar level stable. So something that you touched on that I think is so important for everyone to hear is the importance of one eating all the macronutrients and also eating breakfast. 
I think what's so appealing to some of these diets like intermittent fasting or keto is the weight loss aspect. But do you think that when you get your hormones balanced, your body will naturally maybe put off or take off the weight that it's been holding on to? Yes, I absolutely do believe that. I believe that when we begin to balance all of the body systems, our, our body just kind of naturally finds its happy place. And I think that we have to, there's a few different ways that we can look at this, but I really think it's important for us to kind of let go of any of these maybe unrealistic expectations that we might have for our body because society shows us all of these images all day long of these bodies that maybe aren't as normal or realistic for a healthy woman as um, they actually should be. And so it's really important to kind of accept where your body's natural set point is and just be gentle with yourself and give your body patience and time. Um, and the more that we kind of listen and the more that we learn to balance different systems, we will kind of fall into a place of homeostasis. And I think too, by doing it that way, instead of looking at intermittent fasting or keto or counting calories or counting macros, I think it shifts you from a place of gauging your success off of what do I look like to how do I feel? And I think, I think that's why I love holistic nutrition so much is because when I switched to that, when I really made it a point to eat all of the macronutrients and not restrict myself from calories, I felt so much better. Therefore, I felt like even if I was a little quote unquote bigger than I wanted to be, I felt like I was more confident in my appearance because of that. That is so true. It really does come down to how you feel internally. And as someone like myself who has gone through a lot of ups and downs and bad diets and bad body image and all of these things, I really realized that it's not so much about trying to achieve that goal weight because I have been there and I have achieved that quote unquote full body and it hasn't made me feel any more happy or any more confident in myself. And so I think that's why it's deeply important to focus on how you feel inside and really doing things that are loving and supportive to your body and make you feel nourished from yourself and cared for by yourself. And that in turn will reflect outwards. I think that set number that everyone is so fixated on, I think a lot of that has to do with the number on the scale that you saw in high school when you feel like you were quote unquote your best body. Because I know that was something for me. I mean, I was an athlete my whole life. So track, volleyball, I was at like 130, 135 in college or not college, high school. And I remember getting to college and being like, well, that number isn't what I'm seeing on the scale now. What is like, does that mean something's wrong? Does that mean I've gained weight? But I think people forget that your body continues to mature. It continues to change. And that number isn't going to reflect what you should be at right now. That was my exact experience. And I held on to that for so long. And honestly, the best thing I did was this past year, I purged out all of those clothes that I had been holding on to from high school and thinking that maybe one day I would fit in again. Yeah. And I just got rid of it. And I started buying myself and investing in myself things that made me feel good with my body right now. And so I have to just say, if you are holding on to things that you hope that you one day will fit from a body that maybe will never be healthy at that size for you again, it's just time to let those things go and treat yourself with new things that make you feel good in the body you're in now. 
You talked about the importance of breakfast. I want to go back there really quickly because I know a lot of my friends aren't breakfast people. My boyfriend even isn't a breakfast person. He like will go until 12 or one or two and just be like, okay, now I'm hungry and I'm going to eat. And I'm like, first of all, I've already had like oatmeal. I've already had snacks and I'm like, how do you not have breakfast? So what would you say, what, what are some tips that you could give somebody who maybe isn't a breakfast person, like genuinely might not be hungry when they wake up? How can they transition into becoming more of a breakfast person? So I would love to just touch on something you said about your boyfriend, because all of these studies that are done on intermittent fasting, they are actually done on males. And so men, they are able to keep their blood sugar levels and their hormones more balanced and more stabilized without the need to eat breakfast. So if someone does want to fast and they're a male, I think that there are tons of benefits. And that's a time that I actually would recommend fasting if that's something they feel called to do. As far as being a woman in her reproductive years, I really do encourage eating breakfast, but I also think it's important to listen to your body and kind of consider the time that you would be eating breakfast at. So if someone naturally wakes up at 5am due to work or just because they like an early morning, I wouldn't necessarily say eating breakfast right away unless you wake up naturally hungry. But a lot of times when it's that early in our morning, our digestive systems haven't fully turned on. And so I think that it really does kind of depend on the individual. But if you're waking up, say eight or nine o'clock, I think that's a really good time to eat your breakfast. And what I have personally noticed is I, back in high school, was not a breakfast person either. And I would often feel nauseous in the morning. But when I did start to eat something and kind of just tried it out for a few days, a couple of weeks, your body sort of adapts. And then you naturally begin to wake up hungry every day. And then I also think it's important to just consider what you're eating. And make a breakfast that you actually look forward to eating. There's so many different delicious breakfast foods out there. So there's no reason to be eating something that you don't feel, you don't feel appetized by. Do you think that you can have false hunger cues? Because I notice, say if I wake up early for an early morning flight at like, I'll wake up at five. I don't typically wake up then. I usually wake up between eight and nine and then I, I'll get hungry around nine thirty ten. 10. But sometimes I find when I do wake up at 5 a.m. to go on an early morning flight, I am ravenous. Do you think those hunger cues could be false or do you think that people should really listen to those and eat when they're hungry? I would say eat when you're hungry and listen to those. I think that your body, it, it just it just so depends on the individual and the time of your menstrual cycle then, that you're in and also the season of, the, of um, the year. And there's just so many different factors that can go into play. So no, I think with the false hunger cues, I would always just try to honor your body. And if you really feel like you're hungry, then eat something. So speaking of breakfast, I want to get into coffee, which is like my favorite moment of the day, whether it's coffee or matcha, I just love the ritual. I was looking at your blog though, and I read that you quit drinking coffee. I've definitely had an on and off relationship with coffee because I feel like the more that I drink it consistently, the more jittery I get and the more sensitive I get to coffee, which doesn't make sense to me because I'm like, wouldn't I build a tolerance for the caffeine? But I digress. Anyways, that's a whole different subject. <laughs> um, I have tried to make the switch to like dandy coffee and a more gentler version of coffee or caffeine like matcha, but I'm interested as into why you decided to quit coffee because I definitely have had a love-hate relationship with it. And I think that coffee is something that goes so under noticed with a lot of people that doesn't really sit well with them. 
It's so true. I think that in our society, coffee is just one of those normal things. It's almost as normal as water for people to drink. And I started drinking coffee way back when I was maybe 12 or 13. And I was, I would say I was quite addicted for a really long time. And I, if you had told me I was going to give up coffee back when I was a teenager, I never would have believed you. I thought it was just going to be something that I drank for the rest of my life. But when I really started to go into those, um, having those digestive issues, and especially when that was triggering the anxiety for me, that's when I started to notice that I would be waking up and feeling rather calm. And then as soon as I had that first cup of coffee, that's when the anxiety really started. And that's when I noticed these racial and thoughts coming in. As well as looking at it from a digestive perspective, I noticed that as my gut health was kind of deteriorating, the coffee is very, very aesthetic and it simulates something called paracelsis in our body. And so if we're already having troubles with potentially loose stools and diarrhea, that coffee can really aggravate that. Um, and so that's kind of when I decided that I wanted to just try cutting it out for a month and see how it went. And it was really hard. It's really hard the first couple of days because our body's detoxifying from it. And it's quite common to experience headaches and withdrawal symptoms. But if you're able to get over that initial hump and just kind of do it cold turkey if you want to, or even if you're drinking like four cups a day, slowly cutting down um, and switching it out even for a decaf coffee at first, if that's going to at least be a good substitute for the flavor for you. Um, but yeah, I, after I went over a month, the cravings were gone from it and my body had kind of naturally leveled out and I was able to wake up with energy without needing that coffee in the morning. And that's when I realized I really don't need this anymore. And since then I found lots of fun substitutes because I do love to have a morning, a warm morning beverage when I wake up. I just love the ritual of it. But thankfully there's so many alternatives out there these days that coffee really doesn't have to be a part of our day. I want to get into the alternatives, but I first want to touch on how many people rely on coffee to poop in the morning. Mm. Because I feel like whenever I tell people, okay, well, maybe you shouldn't drink coffee or whenever people are considering not drinking coffee, they're like, well, how am I going to poop in the morning? Because that's, that's what gets it going for a lot of people. What would you say about that? Yeah. So that, that was me as well. Um, I definitely relate. And I think there are a couple of other things that can kind of help our body get going in the morning. Um, but essentially, I think it is important to kind of look at that if you're relying on coffee to go to the bathroom, and if you can't go without it, that likely means there's um, some constipation going on underneath, and that really needs to be addressed. So looking at how much fiber you're eating in your diet, looking at how much water you're drinking, and kind of reevaluating all of that and seeing, okay, maybe, maybe there's something else in my lifestyle that's contributing to this constipation in the first place. But what I love to do now is having some warm water in the morning. I find that oftentimes you don't actually need the coffee and even just the warm one warm water is a really nice way to wake up your digestive system and wake up your bowels. And that can really help to um, go to the bathroom in the morning. What are the different ways that caffeine can affect somebody's body, whether it's hormones, gut health, or just their general well-being? What are some of the symptoms that you see with people who drink a lot of caffeine? 
Yeah, so as far as hormones go, what coffee is doing is it's essentially stimulating our stress hormones. So cortisol in particular, um, and that's why we often feel jittery and kind of um, really ready to go in the morning. But anytime that our stress hormones are going up, it means that it's throwing our other hormones um, off in balance. Because essentially our body uses the same building blocks to make those stress hormones like cortisol as it does to make other really important sex hormones in our body like um, progesterone. And so if we're having a lot of stress in our life, whether that's stimulated by coffee or our job or anything else, it's meaning that it's stealing those necessarily building blocks away from these other hormones and that's going to lead to further hormonal imbalance down the line. And then when we're looking at the association between coffee and gut health, coffee is naturally very acidic. And so if we're having any gut issues or especially something like leaky gut, we really don't want those acidic things um, damaging and, and hurting our gut lining any further. And then just kind of on an emotional mental well-being aspect with coffee, for me personally, I realized that I was using coffee as sort of a crutch and um, in, so essentially I would be waking up tired every morning and I would need that cup of coffee to get me through and really when I took that away I realized oh maybe I actually need to be going to bed earlier and prioritizing my sleep more um, and learning other ways to kind of take care of my body so I don't need to be using coffee in the first place. Something that's so cool about beginning the journey of holistic nutrition or just a more holistic approach is uncovering those things by excluding the things that you didn't even know were essentially distracting you from those things that were really the underlying issues. That's what I find is so fascinating. But I want to get back to the ritual of drinking coffee like we both touched on because not only is it so common in our culture, it's just, it's, it's a very familiar, very comfortable and very, it's part of a lot of people's morning routines and it makes them feel like they're ready to take on the day, not even just the effects of caffeine, but just the routine of doing it. So what are the other alternatives that people can switch to instead of coffee? Yeah. So if you're looking for something that still has a tiny little bit of caffeine, but isn't going to affect your body in the negative ways that coffee might, my go-to favorites are matcha and cacao. So with matcha, it's essentially a concentrated form of green tea, but it actually has um, a nutrient in it called L-theanine. And this is an amino acid that has a very soothing and calming effect on the body. So it kind of counterbalances any effect that um, coffee might have or ca the caffeine in, in the matcha might have. Um, and then as far as cacao goes, there's only a tiny little bit amount of caffeine in that, but that's my personal go-to favorite. And so I love to make these um, cacao drinks in the morning where I'll blend that with some coconut milk or coconut butter um, and often adding a little bit of cinnamon and it kind of tastes like this delicious chocolatey hot chocolate and you can also use organic cocoa powder if you don't have access to the less refined version which is cacao. What are the benefits of cacao? So it's actually very nutrient rich and full of antioxidants. I personally love to use it because it's really rich in magnesium, which is a really important mineral for women's health and hormones in general. And unfortunately, magnesium is very um, 
very depleted from our food quality in, in this day and age. And so I just love to do it because of that. But also it's just got lots of anti-inflammatory effects. And it's also chocolate. There's lots of studies that show that chocolate is really boosting to our mood and overall well-being and kind of increases those endorphins. So I just, I just love cacao for all of those reasons. I know that magnesium is really good for relieving constipation. Do you think that could be something good to drink at night as well, maybe to help someone stimulate their bowels in the morning or just whenever? Yeah, I absolutely recommend magnesium, especially if someone's constipated. There are a few different forms of magnesium. Um, The one that I know that people say often can stimulate the bowels is the magnesium citrate, but I also find that sometimes that might be a little bit too much and may cause diarrhea. And so I think it's just important to kind of look into the different forms and just sort of figure out what one works best for you. I really love the natural calm magnesium, which is this powdered magnesium, which you mix in hot water. And that's kind of got a blend of different forms. So it's easy to digest and absorb. And that'll help not only with constipation, but it can also um, really help with sleep and just kind of making us feel calm at night. I've used that one personally, and I can vouch for both it relieving my constipation and making me a lot more calm at night so that I can go to bed. Because I think my anxiety, the way that it manifests itself sometimes is not being able to wind down at night. So I I do totally agree with you on that calm magnesium. That is like my go-to. Yeah, me too. Love that one. I want to get into seed cycling and periods, because I'm so fascinated by this. And I think it's something that people don't talk about enough. When I was on the journey of healing my hormones, because I lost my period for eight months after getting off of birth control, I didn't have a period at all. And I was really noticing that it was affecting my, my hormones and just my day to day. Because I think at first when people maybe some people don't have their period. They're like, oh, this is awesome. I don't have to have it, you know, use any menstrual products or I don't have any cramps or this is awesome. I don't need to worry about it. But for me, I noticed that, no, I need a period to feel good. I I feel like I need to get that out. I wasn't sleeping good. I was irritable. I was holding on to a lot of stubborn fat that just I knew wasn't supposed to be there. And the first thing that I found on the journey of trying to heal my hormones was seed cycling. So can you go into a little bit of what seed cycling is? Yeah, so essentially seed cycling is the process of using different seeds at different times of the month to support your hormones. And this is because particular seeds have specific nutrients in them that are able to naturally boost the production of our main hormones, estrogen and progesterone, our main sex hormones. And so when we're able to strategically incorporate these seeds um, during specific times in our cycle, it can really be balancing and to help level out our hormones, whether that means bringing certain hormones up that might be too low or helping to reduce hormone levels that might be a little bit too high. And for someone like you who had lost your period, what I often recommend to clients is 
cycling with the moon cycles because the moon and our pure, our menstrual cycle actually follow the very similar pattern. And so if you are someone who doesn't have a cycle at all, but you really want to try to get your period back in a natural way, seed cycling is a really nice tool to incorporate. Um, and I re always recommend starting on the full moon and acting as if that is your period and then using the full moon as if that's ovulation. And so you're switching your seeds out every two weeks with the full and the new moon. What are the benefits of doing that regardless of period? And can someone see results right away? Yeah. So whether or not that you have a period or um, so even if you don't have a period or if you do have a period, but you're experiencing hormone imbalance, the benefits are essentially just to really help use food as a tool to rebalance out those hormones. And so if someone was experiencing really low levels of progesterone, then using some of those seeds can help to naturally bring those levels up. Whereas if someone was experiencing really high levels of estrogen, also known as estrogen dominance, then some of those other seeds will kind of help to rebalance those that estrogen and help detoxify any excess out of the body. When can someone see results with it? Because I know that when I tried it, I didn't necessarily see results right away. And I feel like that's why a lot of people fall off of doing something like that. So how, yeah. how quickly does it, does it work or does it help? So with, when it comes to hormones and really with anything, they are something that takes quite a long time. And this is kind of what I always try to tell people is that if you're on a hormone balancing journey, the most important thing that you can do is have a lot of patience with your body because it often takes months um, and it can sometimes even take a full year to really um, rebalance out those hormones. And so it does definitely take time. I would say with seed cycling, I would give it three months to see if you are noticing any sort of changes. And again, it's just a tool in the toolkit. It's not going to fix all of your hormone problems and it's not going to really be the end all be all, but it's just one affordable and easy thing that people can implement that can really help. What are the seeds that you use during the different phases and do you have to grind them up to eat them? Yes. So essentially, when you start your period, um, you want to be using the flax seeds and the pumpkin seeds. Because when we're on our period, this is when our hormones are naturally at their lowest levels. And so we actually really want to be helping to bring them up, especially with that estrogen, because we want estrogen highest in the first half of our cycle, because that's what's going to encourage our body to ovulate. And we need to ovulate every month to be having a healthy um, period in general. And so um, you do those for the first two weeks. And then when around the time of ovulation, after your body is ovulated, what we really want is for the estrogen to be coming down and for our, um, our body to be bringing our other sex hormone progesterone up because we need that surge in progesterone over the next two months or the two next two weeks in order to actually get our period and have a bleed. And so that's when we switch it out for the sunflower and sesame seeds, um, which have the proper nutrients to help to bring up our progesterone levels. And the reason that it's so important to grind those seeds is because our body cannot fully digest 
whole seeds on their own. And so when we're grinding the seeds in like a little coffee grinder, it only takes like one minute to do that. It's so easy and you can kind of prep them ahead for a few days and keep them in the fridge. Then our body will be able to fully unlock all of the nutrients that are in the seeds. Do you think seed cycling can also help with painful menstrual cramps? Yeah, I mean, I know that I've heard so many different benefits of seed cycling. I think it's going to really depend on the person, but in general, yes, I would say it can because as those hormones begin to balance out, all of those different 150 PMS symptoms can really help to be relieved. Are there any seeds to avoid while you're seed cycling? So as far as my understanding goes, you're totally fine to have other seeds that aren't part of the seed cycling seeds, but I do recommend trying to avoid the sunflower and sesame seeds when you're doing the flax and the pumpkin and vice versa. I want to talk about the period cup now because I find this so fascinating and I just feel like because our world is starting to shift a little bit more to being sustainable, I think it's such an awesome option for people, but not many people know about it or not many people want to learn about it because from first glance, you're like, what is a period cup? So can you talk about what it is? Because it's definitely something that I want to give, give a try once I give birth. Yeah, I love my period cup. And this is something I'm a little bit newer to as well. So I essentially started using the period cup this year and I use something called the Diva Cup. And I wanted to make the switch because exactly what you said, um, there is so much waste that happens when we're using these pads and tampons every month. And so having our cup is going to not only be really beneficial for the environment, but also in the long term, save us a lot of money and kind of give us freedom from not having to purchase pads and tampons every single month. And then I also was really drawn to the cup because I kind of wanted to actually be able to connect with my body in that deeper way and see like what color is my period blood? Am I having different clots in it? And I think the cup's just a beautiful way to kind of get to know your body on a more intimate level. So how do you use it? Do you just really just kind of fold it up and put it in there? Yeah, you really just fold it up and put it in there. And the first couple of times, it's definitely scary and daunting. Um, what I love about the Diva Cup is it comes with a really cute instruction guide, and they also have some video tutorials online that really help to calm your mind and kind of show you some different strategies. And because everybody's body is different, it's going to depend on your actual structure and what what just most feels comfortable to you. But I essentially just recommend getting into a really calm state before you do it because you don't want to be clenching um, and even just using a little bit of water on your hands and wetting the cup um, in the first place can kind of help in the first insertion. Do you have to stick it pretty far? Um, no, it really doesn't have to go that far up, but I, I also do think it just depends on the anatomy of every woman and we're all very different. So that's why it's important to also get a cup size that is best suited for you. And so depending on what type of brand that you're going for, they often do little, um, little quizzes on their websites to kind of show you which might be the best cup for your body type. And how often do you have to change it out? Is it like a tampon where you can kind of leave it in for four hours or how, how often do you need to switch it? 
So it depends on how heavy your bleed is. But for me on lighter days, I will honestly go all day long and then probably not even switch it till the end. And I also will often keep it overnight. Um, and yeah, it depends on how heavy your bleed is and how, what, how big of the cup that you purchased. And you don't want to be like, it is, it is probably most beneficial to try to be switching it out a little bit more often, but I find it gives a lot more freedom and peace of mind than a tampon because you can definitely keep it in for longer without the risks that a tampon would have. Is it messy? So I think that once you learn how to use it properly, it's not messy, but the first initial times, um, it's a little bit like scary pulling it out and it can get a bit messy. So I definitely recommend on your first couple of cycles using the cup to just try to do it at a time when you're at your home and you feel most comfortable and that way you can kind of really learn to use it. And then I've read some reviews for a lot of brands that it can be uncomfortable. So what brand do you really love? So I have only used the Diva Cup and I can totally vouch for that one. I love it and it's really well known and it's quite readily available. I just purchased mine locally and I know I know they kind of retail everywhere and they're, they're quite affordable too. So that's a really good one. Uh, I've also heard some good things about the Pixie Cup too, but I haven't personally tried it. And then how do you wash the period cup? So I, well, between, so when I'm on my period, after I take it out, I'll just rinse it in hot water and then put it back in. And then at the end of my cycle is when you boil it in hot water. Um, and that will take any stains out and it'll look brand new. And then you can just kind of put it away until your next period. And then in terms of birth control, because I think this is something that's super interesting as well. And after having my baby, I don't really want to get back on the pill, but I'm also not trying to get pregnant right away again. Um, so what would you say is a more natural way to practice birth control other than, you know, condoms, obviously? Yeah, so I discovered the whole fertility tracking awareness method this past year, and that's what I started to use because after I came off of the pill, I really didn't want to have any hormones in my body, and so I tried out the copper IUD, but it just didn't work for me. It was really making my periods heavier, and I just feel like my body didn't want anything foreign inside of it, and so that's when I turned to fertility tracking awareness, which is essentially a combination of things, but the main practice that you do is temperature tracking. So taking your resting body temperature every single morning when you wake up, and this is best done um, when you do have kind of a schedule going with your sleep and so it's most accurate when you are taking your temperature around the same time every single morning and being consistent with it but essentially what that shows you is over the course of um, a month and a couple of months of doing this you're going to notice that your body temperature will spike up right before you ovulate and so now there are so many incredible apps that you can use in conjunction with your thermometer and between the two of them it'll tell you when your fertile window is every month and so on those days is when you just want to make sure you're using a condom and um, being careful or abstaining from sex completely. And then the rest of the month, you actually can't get pregnant. Wow. That's so fascinating to me because I feel like, again, with a lot of holistic approaches, it's a lot more of a 
process and it's something that you have to really commit to. But I think once you do so, you just, you learn a lot more about your body and your cycle. And it probably feels very empowering to just kind of be so in tune with your body. Yeah, it's, it's so empowering and it's frustrating because we do not get this education as women in high school or beyond. And I think that we're kind of raised to be so afraid of getting pregnant and really have no knowledge about our body whatsoever. And so that's why we often go on the pill is out of desperation and thinking that there's no other ways. And so I really think it is empowering to understand how your body actually works and really kind of tune into this is the time I'm actually fertile and oh, I actually can't get pregnant during this time of the month. Um, it just gives us so much power. And I wonder if I did that before I got pregnant, if I would still be pregnant today <laughs> because it was totally unexpected. And I think if I was a little bit more empowered, not saying that I regret being pregnant because I'm so excited for this baby, but I think if I was a little bit more empowered on, you know, getting to know my body, I would know that I was ovulating. You know, I think I just people don't know if they're ovulating, yeah. if they're not. And, and it's, it's almost one of those things when you really think about it, you're like, how do I not know about my own cycle? And I think that we can make more informed decisions if we do know. Yeah, it's so challenging because especially with so many women on birth control, that really does take, um, take our power away because when we're on birth control, depending on what type you're on, but almost always you're not going to be ovulating and you're just having synthetic hormones going into your body. But when we're actually completely hormone-free and natural and you are having a regular cycle, you're able to tune into these subtle changes, um, whether it's emotionally or physically, and those changes can show you what type of, um, what time of the month you're actually in and where you are in your cycle. Do you think when you're trying to switch to the fertility tracker, it's important to abstain from sex for that first month to kind of really gauge or use condoms? Yeah, I, I definitely would. I think it's always just best to err on the side of caution. And I would recommend before you do any of these things, um, doing your research about it. And so really learning about the full fertility tracking awareness method. There are some amazing books out there um, and articles and just kind of learning on how to determine when you're ovulating and not just so you can go into it feeling super confident about what you're doing. So I know you're a holistic nutritionist, but I also want to talk about what it means to you to live a holistic life in terms of your home and your environment. So what does holistic living mean to you? Yeah, so holistic living to me means trying to reconnect with the earth as much as possible and return to the roots of how we really used to live, which means kind of trying to get rid of a lot of the toxins that are in our home today. And unfortunately, just so many of the things that we don't even think about that we're using, whether it's makeup or um, cleaning products, all of these things sort of have a lot of different toxins in them. And we just don't even know or have the education or realization that these toxins are disrupting our hormones and doing so many other impacts to our bodies. So to me, holistic living is really about trying to let go a lot of a lot of those things and making my own and swapping things out for more natural products and also just spending more time connecting to the earth and living in a more natural way and just kind of trying to let go a lot of that stuff that um, that is so normal in society, but not beneficial to our health. 
I also read a post where you talked about earthing. Can you go a little bit into that? Yeah. So a lot of us don't spend the time that um, we used to connecting with the earth and the earth actually emits these incredibly healing energetic electromagnetic um, rays and those go into our body and they can really recharge us and um, connecting with the earth is essentially like just as good as drinking coffee in the morning when you're actually able to get out there and spend that time it just re-energizes you and calms you down so that's what I love to do every morning is I try to go outside and just even for five minutes walking around in bare feet on the grass in my yard and really just kind of reconnecting with um, our beautiful earth. What are some ways that someone can reduce the toxicity of their home just like simple simple switches that they can make? I think the easiest place to start is cleaning products because we can so easily make our own. Um, and so that's what I did when I was first doing an overhaul of my home, was just kind of getting rid of all of those other cleaners and making some of my own natural cleaners with essential oils and water and vinegar and lemon. And that's essentially it. And you can use those multi-purpose sprays for anything that you could, whether that's cleaning your bathroom or washing the mirrors, whatever it is. Um, and that's just like an easy place to start. And it's so cheap and affordable and convenient to just make your own. It takes no time and you can just use the most basic ingredients that you already have on hand. What is your take on blue light? I'm interested to know what you think about that. Yeah, so I... I'm cautious with blue light. For me personally, I have had sleeping problems in the past. And so I really do try to make it um, a ritual of turning off the lights after when it does get dark in the evenings. I have some blue light blocking glasses, but I honestly just prefer to try to not use any screens at night at all. Um, and then I love to use the crystal salt lamps, the pink Himalayan ones that emit this beautiful red light. And I just find that so calming and it really kind of makes me tired at night. I just got one of those and I love it. I put it on at night and it just, it makes me want to just get in bed and read and not even like look at the TV. Yeah, those, they're fantastic and very much worth the investment. And then another trick I love to tell people is that if you go into your iPhone setting, you can actually use this thing on your iPhone that's completely free that'll naturally turn up the red hues on your screen before going to bed. So you can set it for whatever time you want that to happen. And it's definitely not blocking out all the blue light, but it is, it is helping a lot. And I've personally noticed a great difference from that. Do you think doing all of these things like reducing your blue light and putting on a salt rock lamp and just turning the lights off, do you think having that kind of environmental harmony can help with your hormones and your gut health and just your overall well-being? Absolutely. Because I really believe that at the root of a lot of gut issues and hormonal imbalances is stress. And the blue light is very stressful and overstimulating for our brain. And so, yeah, when we're doing these things, again, it's going to have that rippling cascade effect on all of our other body systems. And these are little tiny switches that we can make that become just a normal part of our routine every day. And they have a beautiful impact over time. So I think one of the reasons that people stray away or just don't even start in living a healthy lifestyle is because they 
they think that living a healthy lifestyle has to be expensive. So what are your tips for someone who is on a budget, but still wants to live a healthier lifestyle? I think it's about turning back to the basic principles, which is drinking more water, buying more whole foods, and kind of letting go of a lot of those fancy packaged products that we really don't need. I think that, of course, it's fun to buy superfoods and adaptogens and expensive wellness, um, whatever it is, but we don't really need that to be well, and that's not the essential part of wellness. And so I always like to go back to the core principles that are oftentimes very inexpensive or completely free, like connecting to water and making sure you're hydrated and giving yourself enough sleep at night. Those are really the essential things that are going to make the biggest difference in your life. And you don't need to be spending a lot of money on them at all. And then what are three things that everyone needs to have in their kitchen or in their pantry? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, three things everyone needs to have in their kitchen or pantry. I love, well, I love collagen. That is one thing that I do recommend splurging and spending the money on for anybody who does have any gut issues or especially with growing hair and nails. For me, I was having, when I was having a lot of digestive problems, my hair and nails were not doing very well because I wasn't absorbing as many nutrients into my body. And collagen has made the biggest difference in that. So that's something I've actually noticed a really big change in. Um, another thing that I love would be, I would say organic cocoa powder or cacao powder and just using that, whether it's in treats or in my morning latte, that's definitely a staple for me. And then honestly, just like your favorite fruits and vegetables. Those are like my, my base of so many of my meals are just made off of total whole foods. And so I think that that's something that you should kind of put your money towards. And I think having a bunch of fruit and veg on hand is so great too, because most of the time my boyfriend works at night. So I often eat dinner by myself. And sometimes I just, I don't want to make like uh, a very fancy recipe. I'll literally just throw whatever I have in my fridge into a bowl and eat it. And I think sometimes we overcomplicate meal ideas or recipes and people think, well, I don't want to eat healthy because I want it to taste good. So I need to look at a recipe. I'm like, I just some, I always like make up things and just throw anything into my bowl and it ends up tasting amazing. So I think if you, again, if you really focus on the foods, like the fruit and the veggies that you do love, you're going to find, you're going to make something that's really delicious. It's so true. There's so many amazing foods out there. And so that's why you really just got to buy things that you're drawn to. And that's going to make cooking a lot more fun. Speaking of recipes though, what are your go-to healthy meal ideas? Yeah, well, in the mornings this summer, I've been all about smoothie bowls, so I love to do that, and I think they're just a fun way because you can get so many different fruits and veggies in those bowls, and you can add different protein powders, and they're just like these delicious kind of healthy ice creams that you can have every morning, so those have been my favorite. Um, and then as far as lunches and dinners go, I love to do sort of one pot meals. So in the wintertime, I love doing 
kind of sheet roasts where you'll put different veggies and proteins and roast it all together and you can do squash and all of your favorite veg and tofu or chicken or whatever you want to do and it's just so easy because it all just goes in there and then it's all ready at once um and then I also love to do just kind of like different bowls so anything that's like adding a some sort of veggies and then some sort of protein and maybe it's rice or maybe it's sweet potato and then putting a yummy dressing over top of it. Like those are the most versatile thing and you can, you can make a million different combinations. And then lastly, before we wrap it up, I want to talk about your practices for self-care and self-growth and how someone listening could implement self-care and self-growth into their life. Yeah. So my, I used to be a lot more rigid with my self-care and I kind of had these big long morning routines and nighttime routines, but I've kind of come to a place now of really asking myself what I need every day and that's going to look different. It's always going to be changing, but the one thing that is consistent in my life is a mindfulness meditation practice. That's really been transformational for kind of calming my mind in the morning and just giving me clarity and shifting me into a better mood and mindset for the coming day. Um, and so that looks a little bit different every day. Sometimes I just sit in stillness and focus on my breath and try to connect to my body in the present moment. Or other times I use apps and it really like the time is not the most important thing. The most important thing is just giving yourself some time to do it, whether that's five minutes, whether that's 20 minutes. It's just about creating that practice, but not having too many strict rules around it or else it's not going to be sustainable long-term. And I think also too, it doesn't have to look exactly like the next person's. And I think that's the beauty in having your own mindfulness practice or meditation practice is making it flexible to your lifestyle, but also your needs and your wants. So yeah, if that means that you're sitting there for an hour and you're listening to this awesome music and you're really in that awesome place of just Zen and just mindfulness, that's great. But if it's two minutes because you have to get out the door, then that's great too. I think it's just making time for it. And like you said, not being so rigid about it. Cause I think that's when people fall off. Exactly. And I love what you said about mindfulness being different for everyone, because sometimes mindfulness for someone might be painting and another person, it might be going for a walk in nature without your phone. So it is going to look different for everyone. Thank you so much, Hannah, for coming on. I had such a fun time chatting with you and I learned so much. So you're a holistic nutritionist. How can people work with you? Yeah. So my Instagram handle is holistically Hannah with a W in front of holistic. And my website is holisticallyhannah.com. And if you just go onto my website, I have my services page there with all the information. But I recommend giving me a follow on Instagram because I share tons of hormone and gut information over there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me.